This morning, we're coming to the end of chapter 20. So John chapter 20, we'll read from verse 24 to the end of the chapter. John chapter 20, beginning in 24, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask for help. Father, thank you for this, your word. Thank you for our study of John's gospel. Lord, for being faithful and shaping us and molding us in it. We pray that even today you would continue that good work, building our faith, reminding us of who we are in you, blessing us with this blessing on the lips of our Savior. May we live in light of these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. We've seen that on the third day after the crucifixion of Christ, the tomb was empty. The cloth that had wrapped around Jesus' head and body were there, but he is not. We've seen that the resurrection of Christ is not this static event in the lives of his disciples, but it has a deep, shaping reality for every single one of his followers. We saw Mary in deep despair, weeping at the tomb and and then stooping to look and then turning and seeing the Lord and not recognizing him and then hearing her name, Mary, everything changed in an instant. Her utter grief was turned into joy in a moment. Last week we saw uh, the disciples huddled together in a locked room, afraid for their lives, thinking the Jews who had conspired to have Jesus killed by the Romans were going to do the same thing with them. And into their fear, Jesus appears. 
We're not told how he comes into a locked room. We're just told that he was standing there in their midst, announcing peace to them. The Lord commissioned this scared group of disciples. He he then commissions them because of his peace to go out and announce forgiveness. So he, he transforms this, this woman who's in deep sorrow, he transforms her sorrow into joy because of the resurrection. He takes this group of scared disciples in a locked room and he's transforming them from this scared group by the resurrection to this commissioned people who will almost all, to a man, die for the Lord Jesus. The question we've been asking all along since... The resurrection is how has the resurrection of Christ impacted you? How has he changed your life? If he is in fact alive and well today, has that changed you? Today we'll see this change continuing. And it does through the rest of John's gospel. Doubt is something that every single one of us has dealt with in many different forms and many different ways in our life. Doubt is a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. We've all experienced doubt. Doubt about others and doubt about ourselves. Doubt is brought on by indecision that leads to fear, which leads to action in light of that doubt. Our society is riddled with doubt. We're told that truth isn't true. Truth seems to be on trial and that in fact is what is being prized. Doubt is being prized. However, in our text today we see that the doubting of Thomas is actually the enemy of faith. Faith in Christ. His doubt is the enemy of truth. I'm not saying that all doubt is bad. You know good and well that you have reason to, to a healthy degree of cynicism goes a long way. I'm not pushing back against that notion, but this gospel is pushing back against this doubt that would keep us from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ with a fully orbed embrace of faith. Our doubts are informed by so many things, feelings and affections play into our doubts. Loves and loyalties are part of our doubts. Doubt is complex and it is deep. It has to do with our culture the structures in our society, deeply held beliefs and lighthearted superstitions, all of this compiles together to inform our doubts. In many ways, we can say the entirety of John's gospel is written to address our doubts. Here at the end, just before the concluding sentence of the body of 
John's gospel account, John is presenting us with doubt. Doubting Thomas. One of the clearest ways in all of God's word that deals with doubt. The whole goal, the whole objective that John has built brick by brick is so that you and I might believe the gospel and be saved and have life. And here, right at the end, he's, he's hanging a question mark on it and saying, where are you? So we'll look at this in three parts, doubt, confession, and purpose. Doubt, confession, and purpose. First doubt, look again at 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I will never believe. First glance, we might think we know the exact nature of Thomas's doubt. We know as modern skeptics of our day ex exactly what he's doubting. We think he, he doesn't have a grid for the supernatural breaking into the world in the way that it has in the resurrection of Christ. And if we think all of that about Thomas, we would be utterly incorrect. We're wrong about the nature of his doubts. He's not doubting the supernatural. Remember when we first met Thomas? He, he only appears in lists of disciples in the other, in the synoptic gospels. But here we're, we're given a little more detail. And the first time we meet him is in chapter 11. Do you remember what was happening in chapter 11? Lazarus was sick. And Jesus knew good and well that he was sick. And people came and said, hey, Jesus, don't you want to come back and do something about it? And he doesn't. He lets him die. And then after he dies, he says, guys, it's time to go. It's time to go back into danger. It's time to go to Bethany near Jerusalem where people want Jesus dead. And then we read this in verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. You see, the nature of Thomas's doubt wasn't that resurrection couldn't happen. That's not what he's struggling with. That's what modern, skeptical American minds might struggle with. But that is not his doubt. I think too often we reframe his doubt, and so we miss the glory and beauty of what is actually going on here. And what Jesus is doing to overcome his doubts. If we think he's a modern skeptic, 21st century, just like, yeah, supernatural things can't happen. We're forgetting that he was, he was present when Jesus called a dead man who had been dead four days, whose body was stinking, and called him out. Thomas watched that happen. And he had likely seen all these signs across John's gospel. His doubt is not like our 21st century doubt. He had seen great things with the Lord. He's not a materialist. He, he doesn't believe in his worldview that what we see, this is all there is. 
that's you and I, that's our problem, not his. So if his doubt wasn't materialist and this kind of skeptic that we think of, then what was the nature of his doubt? It was more along these lines, the Messiah, the long-awaited Lord, the God of the universe, who, who, who is king over the universe, cannot have died. He didn't come to die. He can't die. The Lord, God, and king, this is not what the Messiah is supposed to do. Clearly, if he really was God, he wouldn't have died in the first place. Not the way I saw this person die. Can't be the same guy. Last week we saw that Jesus offered peace to the disciples who were present and then showed them his scars. This week we hear Thomas specifically desiring to see the scars of Jesus unless I place my hands in the mark of the nails, my finger into the mark of the nails, and my hand into his side. I will never believe how in the world could God give himself over to be crucified? That's the nature of Thomas's doubt. That's a way better question than challenging the supernatural reality of resurrection. It's, it's the, okay, John is putting this here at the end of his gospel because he's been building all along to explain to us how God who, who, who called all things into existence by the word of his power, who made everything, how that God could end up on a cross and die. That's the nature of Thomas's doubt. Okay, it's looking pretty great. You've, you've convinced me, John, that this was God. Now, how could that God end up nailed to a Roman cross and die there? That was the nature of Thomas's doubt. Again, his problem was not modern skepticism. His problem was personal and theological. Jesus, the Jesus that he had come to know and love and revere was nailed to a cross. And that's why he's placing his emphasis on the wounds of Christ. What does he want to see? It's not just that he wants to see that Jesus is raised. He wants to know that it's him who died, the one who was pierced. He wants... Unless he sees and touches, he's not going to believe. He was deeply, and all the disciples were deeply insecure that the Lord had died. If you remember, Thomas was prepared to die with Christ. He thought that was the way the kingdom was coming. He's like, okay, when, when we go back to Jerusalem, war is, war is coming. And, and then he's, he's so brave in his love and loyalty for Jesus, but he's framing the kingdom around his personal power. And he's saying, let's go to Jerusalem too so that we can die with him there. The kingdom is coming through the sword and through death. He is convinced of it. And Jesus is here to overcome. And that's the way that it's supposed to be. Jesus is supposed to be here handing it to the Romans. And I think you and I struggle with the very same things. We want a Messiah to do things for us, to set the kingdom right for us, the way that we see that things should go. The demand of Thomas was not 
the supernatural. He wasn't doubting supernatural things. He had seen incredible things. The demand of Thomas is what kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of Lord is he? I think so many in our day hide behind a rejection of the supernatural when the real issue is that they cannot accept the reality that sin deserved death and that the Son of God came into the world and was hung on a Roman cross and died there and was raised three days later. It's not just modern skepticism. It's not just that we're all materialists and we believe anything outside the materialist world in which we've placed our faith can't exist. That's a lot of problems. Look, look, uh, uh, there's a lot of people in the world, in this country, who hang on to that ideology, that worldview. There's a lot of people who would grant that there's a lot more going on than just material things, but they would utterly reject Christ because of this very thing. How can God come and die? We've said all along that one reason John is writing this gospel is to prove not only that Jesus is God, but that God in Christ has come to die. And Thomas is saying, unless I know it's him, I'll never believe. Jesus came precisely because of our false notions of God. That's what sin has done to each and every one of us. Fundamentally, repentance means we change our mind about who God is and about who we are. Thomas did, did not expect a God who would actually come to die for him. That sounds utterly crazy. He needed a change of mind about who God is. He needed to repent. And so I think John is, is pushing this back on us like with a mirror saying, hey, so do you guys. Repent. So we have this doubt of Thomas, but we also see him confess Christ. Look at verses 26 and 27, eight days later. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Same song, second verse. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Literally, stop being unbelieving. But believing. Eight days later, again, John is taking us to Sunday, the first day of the week. Every part of a day is considered a full day, so he's not talking about the following Monday. He's, tell he's telling us that this is the next Lord's Day. This was already the established pattern of the disciples after the resurrection of Christ. They're meeting on Sunday. The next Lord's Day, the disciples are again together. Again, probably still scared. They've had Jesus come announce peace to them, but they're still thinking, hey, I could die. Again, a closed room. 
And Jesus again walks into their midst. But I have an observation. Where was Thomas the previous Lord's Day? And this kind of hurt my feelings when I saw it. This didn't make me comfortable when I saw it this week. Where, Where was he the previous Lord's Day? He wasn't there. We're not told where he was. Only that we know that he wasn't there because Jesus already came into the room and Jesus already did all of this. He was not gathered together with his brothers worshiping on the day of resurrection. We don't know where he was. He was absent and when he came back, he was full of doubt. Do you see it? I'm not saying that if you miss a Sunday worship gathering, you're going to end up being a skeptic. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the scripture, the text, is giving, it's giving us some clues, some insight into wh- where did this come from? And one of, the, one of the answers the text is giving us implicit in it is that not being present with his brothers in the body creates this seed, this bed of doubt. Again, I'm not saying that if you miss a Sunday, you're sick, you're doing whatever. Like I'm not saying you're going to come back as skeptic, but you could. You could. Thomas had been gathered with the other disciple on that first resurrection Sunday. His doubts would have already been answered. Exactly what he was asking for, Jesus had done the previous Sunday. Remember last week when Jesus announced peace, peace to you? What did he do next to show them that there is now peace? What did he do? Showed him the scars. The exact thing that Thomas is saying, I have to see for myself, he did the previous week. Hebrews 10 provides a similar warning as this text, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglect, neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Foolishness and doubt grow in the dark and in isolation. If you want to get yourself in spiritual trouble, isolate yourself. And I'm not just talking about Sunday mornings. I'm talking about relationships with other people in the body who, where, of places where you can be known and you can know other people. If you neglect that, you're in trouble. Proverbs 18, 1 and 2, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. It's foolish. Being isolated as a Christian is foolish. Thomas had isolated himself. And so missed being with Jesus on that first resurrection Sunday. Listen, I'm not coming down on any one person. There are reasons to miss Lord's Day worship. But even when you do miss, do you lament that reality of being together and singing with the people of God and communing with the people of God and being under the 
the, the teaching of the word of God. Do you, do you lament that? Do you miss it? Do you see it as vital? Look, I'm looking at, at everything I can for where this doubt, this, these seeds of doubt are planted in the heart of Thomas. And that's one glaring piece. He was not with the people. He wasn't with his brothers. We live in such a fragmented society. Our society cuts across the scriptures telling us, be whatever you want to be. You give yourself identity. God's word never says that. It says that this gives us all identity. We are marked as the people of God, loving one another because of what Christ has done. This is our identity. You're defined by the family that you are in. You're defined by the church, the body of Christ. Not in isolation, but in real community and worship and rest on the Lord's day. This is who the people of God are, and this is what we do. Jesus again comes to his disciples, again locked in, we assume... Again, they're still afraid. Again, we find Jesus announcing peace to the room. Then he addresses Thomas directly. Why is Jesus coming to Thomas with such direct interaction? Was Jesus in the room when Thomas said these things? No, the text doesn't say that. Wait, did Jesus have some kind of hearing device to somehow overhear? The text doesn't say that. He knows exactly what he says because Jesus is God and Jesus is sovereign. And even in the fact that he knew exactly what Thomas said and goes directly to him, proves it. He's God. Notice that detail. Nowhere does it say that somebody ran to Jesus saying, Jesus, you'll never guess what Thomas said doesn't happen. Jesus is God. God comes to Thomas and he relieves him of his doubt. Jesus knows all our secret thoughts. He knows. He knows all our lingering doubts. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There is no escaping him. Thomas is learning a vital lesson. You can't run from him. There is no place of doubt inside of you where the Spirit of God can't invade and doesn't see at every single moment, every single second. You can't hide. The answer for Thomas and his doubts and for you and me is this, and it's good news. There's, there's nowhere we can hide. The grave could not hold him. He was dead, but now he's alive. Jesus removes all his doubts by taking Thomas's hands, and I imagine 
him taking them in his, him grabbing his hands and taking them to his scars. See, but touch him, him again, taking off his outer garment, which he does so often, and taking his hand and saying, here, here's where the, the spear pierced me on the cross. Here's where the blood and water flowed from. Here, Thomas. It's me. And Thomas has this experience with the risen Christ. He does not say, wow, it really is you. Wow, supernatural things really are possible. Wow, my skepticism was totally misplaced. No, he he doesn't. He's actually pointing us the way. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord, my God. If you want an expression of faith, like this epitome of faith in the Gospel of John, here it is. What is John going after in the readers, all his readers' hearts, all the way down to today, 2,000 years later? My Lord and my God. That's what he's after. This is the only time in the narrative of John that an individual refers to Jesus as God. This is the climactic moment. This is where John has been driving us all along. Jesus has claimed to be one with the Father. We've deduced this long ago, but now this statement is coming out of the mouth of one of his followers. This isn't John's narration. This isn't a quote from Jesus. This is a believer, a disciple saying, You're my Lord, my God, to Jesus. In John 1, in the prologue of John's gospel, we hear that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. However, again, it's not out of the mouth of a follower. Notice again what Joe pointed out, my My Lord, my God, it's personal. It's not distant. Not just Lord and not just God, but mine. And that is the difference between a a theological, cold, distant reality and conversion. This is conversion. This is not just acknowledging a a truth out there. This is saying this truth belongs to me. It's mine. It's in my heart. It's in my mind. It's in my life. It's It's going to inform my decisions. It's going to inform everything about who I am. It's not over there. This is for me. My Lord. Listen to me. Years ago, there was this controversy about making Jesus Lord of your life. Thomas isn't making Jesus anything. Jesus is already the king. He's simply acknowledging his submission to the king, to the Lord, to the master. Then he calls him my God. Thomas believed that when he touched him that day, he looked into his eyes the eyes of a living and breathing man, but he also believed that day 
that when he looked into the eyes of Jesus, he was, he was looking into the eyes of God. My Lord and my God. J.C. Ryle says this, quote, it was a clear, unmistakable declaration that Thomas believed him, whom he saw and touched that day, not to be not only a man, but God. Above all, it was a testimony which our Lord received and did not prohibit, and a declaration which he did not say one word to rebuke, end quote. But there are others throughout Scripture that when somebody says something of reverence and awe to them or about them, they say, stop it. Cut it out. I'm not God. You don't worship me. Angels do this. People do this. Don't worship me. I'm not God. You can't say those things about me. Jesus doesn't say one word of protest to this statement by Thomas. Because Thomas was right. Jesus is, in fact, Lord and God. So the question comes to each one of us, is is this your profession? Not just that Jesus is Lord, not just that Jesus is God, but that he is your Lord. That he is your God. Not some cold and, and distant theological reality, but that fully being embraced by you by faith today. That's the question that that John is putting right in front of our face. The, The personal nature of what we heard earlier, the psalmists do this all the time and they're so good at it. One reason that you should love the psalms and read them every day is this. My rock, my redeemer, my shepherd, my cup, my deliverer, my portion, my shield, my defender, my light, my song, on and on and on it goes. Mine. Mine. Not some cold, distant, out of the way thing. A God who is ours. Here's the crazy thing about this profession. John has waited all this time for this profession to to come. But it only comes after the cross and resurrection. Now is the right time. Everything has been fulfilled. There's no other God than the God of the cross. If you want to rightly see God in the world, you have to look at the cross. You have to look at resurrection. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. I don't think that Jesus is putting down the faith of Thomas. He knows that very soon his body will no longer be here. And he's envisioning a time where he cannot just, he's not going to just come into a room. When he comes back, it will be very visible. He's envisioning a time when he will go away. And he knows that you and I aren't going to have this luxury of putting our hands in his side and feeling the scar on his hands or on his feet. He, He knows that. And so he offers a blessing to us. This blessing is for those believers today in this room. He's calling us blessed. You, child of God, Jesus is blessing right here. Blessed are those who have not seen. And yet believe. 
Blessed are believers. Jesus is blessing every single one of us. He knows that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word, not by sight. This is, again, the climax of the whole letter. The application question comes back to us like a mirror. What are we going to do with Jesus? John has written all of this for the sake of belief in the gospel. And we have this dual witness. We have his word and we have the Holy Spirit, which John has talked. That's a drum he's been beating the whole time. We have two witnesses coming at us today saying it's all true. Every single bit of it is true. What are you going to do with Jesus? This section closes with the purpose statement. I think it's jammed together with this issue with Thomas, with the doubts of Thomas, because he's still going after belief. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. He could give an, an ocean of evidence. But he's saying, I've been selective chosen my battles. I've given you seven signs, turning water into wine, cleansing the temple, healing the nobleman's son, healing the lame man, feeding the multitude, healing the blind man, raising Lazarus. He then gives us this ultimate sign, the resurrection of Christ himself. He's like, I've been curating this for you all along. I've been taking you by the hand and walking you through the life of Jesus. He didn't just give us the signs. He gave us seven I am statements coming from the mouth of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. We're not meant to listen to all of these as we have heard in some cold and distant way. This is Jesus revealing to the world who he is and what he's about. He's saying this. It's like this vast museum that you can never go through in a whole lifetime. John is saying, I've, t- I've taken you by the hand and I've walked you through this in a very specific way so that when we get to the end, you, you would say the same thing Thomas says, my Lord and my God. The object of faith is Christ himself, the long-awaited anointed one. He has been at pains to tell us that Jesus is greater than Adam. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than David. We are not saved by these certain doctrines being true. The the devil knows that these certain doctrines are true and he's going to be doomed forever. We're, We're saved by personal faith in Christ. He wants us to believe my Lord and my God. Here we are at the conclusion of John's gospel. We'll have the, the epilogue in the next couple of weeks. But this is really the conclusion of the body. This is the summary statement. We had this prologue and we have the body, the body which is broken up into two parts. And here we are at the very end of that. And he's saying, do you believe? And I think he's kind of hanging up, like, if you don't believe, why not? What are you afraid of? 
The last verse of Come Ye Sinners says this, Lo, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude, none but Jesus. None but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Edwards says it like this. Great questions. What is there that you can desire in a Savior that is not in Christ? What excellency is there wanting? What is there that is great or good? What is adorable or endearing? Or what can you think of that would be encouraging which is not to be found in the person of Christ? Who's better? Is there anyone better than him? Is there any news better than this in in all the universe? What is better than this? John has presented Christ from eternity past, the one who spoke all things into existence. He has come. He has broken into time and space. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. And then he died a shameful and brutal and humiliating death and is now raised in glorious resurrection and all because of sinners. This is the Christ that John is holding out. What do we get with Jesus? By believing, he says, you may have life in his name. Jesus takes his people from darkness to light, from death to life. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for this gospel that has been at work. Lord, give us hearts of faith today. Strengthen that faith as we feed upon you by your word and by your sacrament. Lord, shape this church. May we be those who believe. Not disbelieving, but believing. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.